We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast daily Euros edition with me Tim Stillman in the presenting chair as Elliot continues to take his long-suffering wife on a long weekend away for her birthday. Now usually we're joined by Phil Costa for these but we're, we're, we're changing it up a little bit tonight because Phil, jammy bastard that he is, bagged a ticket for Germany-Portugal at the Allianz Arena in Munich and he couldn't get back um, to his home in Berlin in time to record this podcast so this is very much a free-form jazz podcast in which we say no to the experts and when you're saying no to the experts the best person to invite on the podcast is paul who you can find on twitter at poznan in my pants paul how you doing you, you bitch Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was yeah, quite I'm... a professional intro i don't know if you heard mine yesterday but it was not anyway that, that was pretty good yeah, I, I figure the best thing with intros and outros is not to think about them because that's that's when they become yeah, that's when they become a little bit convoluted and a little bit wordy. So um it's best to do those off the dome piece, I think. Fair enough. Uh, it doesn't work for me, but neither does thinking about it. So anyway, here we go. Fair enough, fair enough. Anyway, three um I think all three games today were really good fun for quite different reasons. And the great thing about pretty much all of them is they leave their respective groups absolutely wide open. Mm. I think the one we should really start with is mm. Germany v Portugal, mm. the mm. kind of the, the middle game, the sandwich game, as it will, or sorry, the meat in the sandwich of the day. Um, I don't know about you, but I mean, this might have been the best game of the tournament so far. For me, this was the most surprising game of the tournament so far because I have Portugal very much pegged as super talented and very boring, um, which which is why they're one of the favourites because I think being a fun team means you don't win international tournaments. And Germany, I very much have pegged as real talent, loads of talent in the squad, but a manager that doesn't know what he's doing and therefore they're kind of meandering um, and just waiting for this kind of corpse of the Yogi Love era to die. 
and actually what we ended up with was a really fun game what did you make of this one um yeah like today generally i just thought football's kind of weird and narratives and things spin going on their heads also there's like it's probably not true but the middle game of the of these uh group stages like anything can happen but then so so it can in the final game of the group stage but like there's some funky games in the middle where you're like are these guys really trying to win? Well, this wasn't one of those. One of these teams was really trying to win, and one of these teams was really trying to stay in it. Uh, I thought it was. I really enjoyed this game, um, and yeah, Germany are back. Phil and I did this thing last night on our pod where I ranked the top uh, eight teams as I kind of saw them, not so much as who I thought would win it, because you, then you you like Germany were crap in the first game. Mm-hmm. just to simplify it. Uh, but you still fancy them as a serious contender because they're Germany. So it was like ignoring the na- label on the tin, where would you put these teams? And uh, <clears throat> it was kind of funny because I still put Germany third or fourth because I couldn't ignore the label on the team. But they should really have been maybe seventh or eighth after the first round. And then after this, uh, yeah, I mean, you could, <laughs> suddenly they're into like the top the top two, three teams that you would, in the same sentence, say are the real deal here. Yeah, but again, absolutely. it's just one game. Yeah, yeah in, indeed. And like when you look at their squad, like it's so talented. They brought on Leon Goretzka as um, as a substitute to that. Like their their squad is dead. like they could probably do with like um, they could probably do with like a Lewandowski or a Lukaku mm. or something like that. But their squad is so so deep. It's just the manager. And what they've been going through for the last couple of years is they've done this thing where they've kind of they tried to ditch the 433 because they were playing like 2010 football. And mm. so um, after after the Russia World Cup, Yogi Love was like, right, I'm not picking Boateng anymore, not picking Hummels, not picking Muller, clean, you know, clean sweep, all of that. We're playing stale possession football. That's out. And he switched to a 343. And then that didn't work and they got beat 6-0 by Spain. They lost to North Macedonia. And so he kind of went back to a 4-3-3 and started playing that stale possession football again. But then on like the eve of the tournament, he's gone back to a 3-4-3. And, and, it, and it's so like, I mean, what does that tell you? That tells you that you've got a manager that just doesn't know what he's doing anymore. <laughs> it's just kind of like really, really just grasping for things. But on on actual talent, like Germany, I, I don't know how much of a cliche um, this is outside of England. I, I don't know if you, if you ever hear this in like the US or maybe Ireland, but, you know, like don't write off Germany has become like a real cliche because no matter how bad they look, you always kind of fancy them. This is the one time everyone actually wrote off Germany, I think. <laughs> and and on the strength of this game, they probably shouldn't have. Yeah, um, I think I can't remember which tournament it was, but it happened once before. And and like like everybody had genuinely, in, particularly the Germans had written them off. I'll have to work out which tournament that Maybe was. Maybe 2002. Yeah, that sounds about final. right. Yeah. And they were just down on themselves and they didn't believe in themselves. And like, it's kind of a sure sign. I mean, one of the things is if, if you're actually the business, you get kind of real with yourself when you're down on yourself and people settled in and play for the team. Cause there's no point in playing for yourself. <clears throat> um, I guess uh, uh, like 
again on the reversing narrative thing, right? Um, I think you gave a very fair reflection of where Germany's at and where uh, Yogi, the the finger sniffing manager, is at in terms of his Germany career. And then he pulls this one out. You know, three at the back. His his wing backs aren't working. He's got you know those guys shouldn't be playing wing back. One of those guys isn't even a a winger. He's he's a full back that was converted to a midfielder who's back to a wing back and like who tore Poland or sorry who turned turn uh, tore uh, Portugal a new one in this the two wing backs uh, plus that you know the player you mentioned Muller uh, getting dropped out but brought back in. It's like reverse narratives reversing narratives and like it was it's three at the back for those who sometimes we we question how attacking at three at the back can be and other folks say oh it can be as attacking as you like with wing backs and now maybe portugal played into that in the first half in particular because they did seem to settle into a defensive counter-attacking shape whereas france were unwilling to do that and so the the wing backs didn't kind of didn't have the freedom to go at France the way they did against Portugal. But I mean, uh, if this was the only game you saw with uh, Yogi Love and his three of the back wing back system, you'd say it was an absolute genius. And this was, you know, this was management personified. Uh, but on a one game snapshot, this was great stuff. They absolutely took them apart for the most part. And uh it was a bit of a masterclass uh, for it. And, and, you know, the other gem is the no real striker factor, yeah. but scoring four goals. And as you mentioned, Lewandowski is the one you always think he should be playing. Oh, no, hang on. He doesn't play. He didn't play for Germany. He plays in Germany. And there's Poland with only a striker, Lewandowski, and nine other fillers in the in the outfield in Germany with the opposite problem, though it wasn't a problem today. And like the thing is with this game as well, I, I'm pretty sure Germany just scored the same goal at least three times. Yep. Um, with that overload on on the flanks, and you know Fernando Santos, he he tried to change it at half time. He took Bernardo Silva off and put Renato Sanchez on because I think he could see that that Germany were were having a bit of fun with their wing backs. Have you ever seen a game before where a team has essentially one tactic? but it just keeps working so, so well. It kind of put me in mind of Arsenal away at Stoke and the Rory Delap throw-in for a couple of years. It was just, <laughs> just yeah, we'll just keep switching to um, to the wing-back, uh, Gosens over there, and your right winger will just keep not tracking him. Like, have you, have you ever, like, uh, particularly at this level, seen that kind of tactic just work so often? Well, I've a shit memory, so I definitely have, but I can't remember it. Yeah, it did seem like they were just doing the same thing again and again. Um, like the thing that the the what I think gave them the Joker in the pack effect was like Muller. I hate Muller. Absolutely fucking hate him as a human being. He's <laughs> a really good roundoiter, though. I mean, he's just so clever, works so hard. I don't know what energy drinks they have him on, though I sus- can suspect at that day age in his life. In fact, this whole tournament is going to screw with Elliot's age curve theory, but maybe that's <laughs> international tournaments don't push you the same way a Premier League season would. But like he's just he's so good in terms of of kind of the chaos havoc creating, and his counterpart um, 
Lewandowski in the Poland game again. So many, I, two people I absolutely loathe, but you can't help but say they're so effective. So like it, Muller had a season or two where he was off the boil, both for Germany and and for Bayern, and then comes back strong. And like they just don't waste a minute on the pitch. They're always doing something, always causing problems. And I think that's what brought this, what could be quite a stale. You know, we played our our three of the back wing backs, and what we really lacked was somebody to stir the pot in the middle and give mm. the the opposition something to think about. Otherwise, you get into a horseshoe passing. You don't get the chance to do those switches that they did so well. Not that. You know, one thing we lacked was the switches in crossing passes to the same degree. And the, we'd have one, you know, we had a, Arsenal would always play a very asymmetric uh, three at the back with wing backs where one wing back got forward normally. And like this kind of shows you how you stir the pot at the same time and give the, the defense no rest. And so they don't see that wing back coming in again, as you said, the same goal effectively three of the four times. Yeah, and, and actually one thing that Yogi Love has done quite well with Germany, either by accident or by design, like he struggled with what to do with the midfield and the defence, but that front three, um, and usually actually it's been Werner rather than Muller. Muller has really come back into the starting lineup for this tournament, but you know their front three of Muller, uh, Gnabry and Havertz, I mean, it kind of looked like they were all playing centre-forward. At some yeah. point, I mean, the two Portugal own goals, Havertz is the one that's in there. Mm. You'd, you'd have Muller as a more central player. Gnabry is Germany's top scorer over the last two years. And that's not because he's out on the touchline. So they, they've got a lot of fluidity in that front three. They they kind of just need to sort their midfield out, which sounds like a really weird thing to say when they've got players like Crows and Gundogan and uh, Kimmich who kind of plays as a right wing back or as a, as a central mid, like they've got yeah. their Goretzka. Stacked, yeah, Goretzka. They're so stacked in midfield, but they don't seem to have worked out what quite to do with that midfield or that defense yet. It's, 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 they're, they're really interesting. I wonder what this game did to your perception of, um, well, well, we've talked a lot about Germany. What, what did this do to your perception of Portugal as challengers in this tournament? Uh, incredibly disappointingly blur. I mean, um, I, like Bruno Fernandez, I wouldn't buy this player. I don't know what mm. what version of Bruno Fernandez? But like, uh, now I, you know, I, I was saying to Phil last night, I do have a tendency to watch the Euros in a different way, in in that I mainly watch them for kind of entertainment mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, it was a funny moment I said to Phil, him being a little younger than myself, and the game haven't changed in social media and data and analytics, analytics and stuff. And I'm like, did you always look at football analytically? Because I didn't, like when I first started. And for at least a decade or two, I basically just watched for entertainment, the big man on the ball, the names. You know, I, I'd be able to tell you and two or three. And the result and the drama and the back and forth and you feel the energy and the flow and like you talk, you know, a, a lot of soft factor stuff and like it was very enjoyable and it was a simple life, simple world. And then it all got complicated. So I said to him, did you always watch football analytically expecting him to say something like, ah, well, you know, when I was 24, 25, he says, um, no, no. When I was younger, 
I, uh, you know, like you, I, I used to watch it in a similar way. And then he named some tournament. I can't remember what year it was. And I, I'm like, you would have been eight. And he says, yes, seven. That was the last time we can remember not watching it analytically. So things have changed. And <laughs> what was your question again? Oh, yeah. About so how's Portugal? Yeah. yeah. So like. I, just nobody pop, like I didn't get over analytical about them, but nobody popped in this game for me. Um, they didn't do much. They sat back. They only played towards the end when they had to, and they got up the field and created some possession and tried to get some set pieces going. It was all very basic. They didn't seem to be able to string things together. I know before the game, Love said that uh, one of the challenges with Portugal is. It, they're difficult to play because you have to get the ball off them. But they didn't seem to want the ball in this game. And certainly Germany would have had to have given them the ball to have the problem of getting the ba- ball back off them. Um, they were very disappointing, unambitious. Maybe they're reading the table and saying uh, they, they want to come third because they've worked out who they'll play in the next round or something. But it was so unambitious. You know, there was a lot of talk uh, about uh, Ronaldo. And like he does a couple of things in this game. One of them is that no look pass, which I thought was pretty stupid because I could have done that pass. No look too. So like that's not something you brag about Ronaldo 15 minutes into a game. And then he ran the length of the pitch for the goal. And people are like raving about him out sprinting everybody. And it's like he just ran. I mean, it was like it was he was clever off the corner to to start the play. He was immediately onto it because he recognized this was the kind of opportunity where they could carve things open. They worked the counter really well. Um, it was definitely a, a, a master class in how you work the counters. And I'm always amazed people think Arsenal are a good counter attacking team because I think we're, we've been terrible at it for years. Mm-hmm. And these guys, one, two, three, and Ronaldo's on the end of it for a glorified tap in, but he still has nice movement to to create the the gap between him and uh, might have been Havertz running back with him actually off the corner. And, uh, you know, it's a really uh, well-structured counter. But they kind of didn't do anything else in this game. And uh, I think they were awfully disappointing and lacked ambition and belief in themselves. It reminds me of when, like, they got to the final and won the Euros was the last time. Yeah, 2016. They weren't great, but it was like a life support machine for Cristiano Ronaldo. And uh, I know he didn't play in the final, but it, it, it all seemed to be one of these structures, you know, a Poland built around Lewandowski. And it's just very uninspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Take. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I yeah. And you look at some of the players that have come in since Euro 2016 and, you know, Portugal really have got one of the most talented and one of the most complete squads, I think, in the tournament. But um, yeah. let's move on to... Um, uh, the only thing I'd yeah. say, just to finish that off, to do, to do to you what I always do to Elliot, the only thing I'd say, just three <laughs> words on that. Um, like, I did at one stage look at the talent on the pitch and, like, it, it should have matched up pretty bloody well to Germany. You know, mm. who they are, who they play for, the level they're at. Um, there's really no excuse for that level of gap of ambition but maybe it was just one of those middle games where they thought they were playing for a point and they didn't really want to take on Germany. They just wanted to survive Germany, scramble for a point and uh, make it to the next, uh, the third game in the series. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think 
probably in hindsight going one nil up was probably the worst thing for them um, in that respect. But let, let's move on to um, what was the first game of the, the first game of the day, France versus Hungary. I I love this game. I really, really love watching games where you've got a clear favourite against an underdog and an underdog takes the lead. But then ideally what you want is for the favourite to equalise, but not straight away, but with the, with their like with about thirty or twenty minutes left, so you set up that kind of ground. You're gonna love this finish. game, Tim. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and that's exactly how this game turned out. And I mean Hungary kind of take the lead out of nowhere. Um, after France create and and miss several several big chances, um, but I, I kind of want to start. Well, actually, I want to start with a stat, which is in 1927 in this fixture in Budapest, Hungary beat France 13-1, um, and they they fell just a little bit short of that one today. <laughs> but nevertheless, was Pushkas or whatever his name playing? He was no, probably, not he was, at that point. He was probably not a baby, point. was he? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a little bit um, a little bit before Pushkas's time. I, the first thing I really want to focus on, because we'll come back to France and, and some of the chances they missed, um, but the the, the uh, Attila Fiola goal for Hungary, and I mean, look, there are many reasons that it's kind of not okay that Hungary have um, a capacity crowd for this, and and look, I I, um, I gather that the vaccination program in Hungary has been one of the best in Europe. Um, at the moment but when one looks at their government and some of the things their government is trying to do to legitimize their regime you know holding big champions league games last season and things like that and they're trying to elbow in on the euros final and semi-final um, at the moment because um, the british government is not sure about uh, quarantine restrictions and things like that like there are reasons that hungary um, that Budapest has a full stadium at the moment and they're not all public health reasons. Um, and I think we should put that on record. But when that hungry goal goes in, and did you see the celebration afterwards as well? Uh, yes. So like this was the I saw two of these games in full and this one on highlights. And uh, yeah, I think I did. Was this the one with the microphone and the desk and Fiona yeah, the, lost his shit? Yeah, uh, the poor woman on her desk. Yeah, yeah. Corner. Like <laughs> things, things were getting a little out of hand there. But yeah, this was uh, this was a lively moment. You, you could tell this was that that this goal was a little more than just football. And uh, yeah, they lost their shit, which was good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I just wonder, like. Um, you know, watching because one of the things that's been refreshing about these this tournament is watching games with crowds and with like fairly sizable crowds as well, even though most of them are only 25, 30 percent. But the games in Budapest and again, Pesht. I Pesht. Yeah, sorry. I've no, I've no idea, but I like you don't miss <laughs> an opportunity to say Budapest if if anybody True. on the planet says it. So let's... <laughs> but I mean, the games in front of a capacity crowd like it yeah. it it just hits different doesn't it and i think yeah, it, it i think it did for hungary in this game yeah and i mean uh again the narrative thing but it it was this was uh it, it, the the results shouldn't always be the results uh but you could see why a game like this would end up in 1-1 with with hungary with that crowd i mean france pretty much battered them but the variance in in a football game, um, 
you still got to get that second goal when when the other guys score first and like the energy of the crowd and yeah that's that's why i mean international football at its best is this stuff where you have a little bigger team against a little smaller team but the crowd behind the smaller team and you know everything's on the line and this felt like a final for hungary and they played like one and the atmosphere was there for it, and it was just tremendously entertaining so yeah, absolutely. And um, but what really made me laugh about this game for for France is, and again, like France are a, a bit like like more so than Portugal, I think, like super talented and yeah. like across the squad. It's not like like Belgium are very talented in midfield and attack, but less so in defence. And um, and Portugal maybe not quite as deep as France. But France have just got talent everywhere in every yeah. position, basically on the pitch. But what really made me laugh, and so they can make lots of substitutions that change games. But what really made me laugh about this game, they started uh, the Everton left back Lucas Digne uh, um, at left back because he's a really good crosser. And so in the first half, you get like Mbappe has two or three really good headed chances. Yeah. And then in the second, like Benzema not massively in this game, so they bring on Giroud the last 20 minutes and then proceed to hit no crosses in <laughs> whatsoever i think they basically um, no shots after about 70 minutes or something like that yeah absolutely and and i, and I just wondered um i guess give, giving this a bit more of an arsenal spin um as well like with with Giroud, like has there ever been a player that giveth and taketh away so much <laughs> at the same time in terms of when you play Giroud, even when you put him on as a super sub, you have to absolutely commit to him. And that probably means ditching everything else that you do. And I was, I was just wondering what your, um, I, I mean, I know you only saw highlights of this game, but um, which is why I want to stretch the question out a little bit wider about Giroud and yeah. like what he can offer, but what he can take away from you as well. Well, I think it's interesting that he had that squabble about basically Mbappe not passing mm-hmm. to him. Um, but I I always thought it was more reflective of the, of the fact, fact that it was more a question of the team not adapting to him, having kind of structured themselves in a more fluid way uh, to support like the, play, the more dynamic play of Benzema, the more uh, like Benzema gives back in equal measure and you got the movement etc and like i just wonder if that was more reflective of the team not being able to flick that switch because it's such a different look when Giro comes on and you get to hit the big man um now they've had a few years of playing with him but like once you get a taste of how you really want to play with the options with benzema i mean that's a pretty spicy front three when you've got mbappe benzema and uh, what's-his-face, Griezmann. Um, like, they're all brilliant. Um, they're, they're all scorers and also kind of generous creators, and they just love playing that way. Now, Giroud's good at the, the, uh, the knockdowns and the layoffs, etc., but it's a different kind of game. It's very old school, and um, from what I understand, again, they didn't really adapt to him coming on here and like you say, they didn't feed him his game, but like 
I guess both sides suffered off that in the sense of the rest of the team and him because he's basically they got no shots in the last 20 minutes and that's not going to help his case for getting on at the end of games when they need a goal. You know, they might just go another way. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, and I do think, um, I mean, I must say my affection for Giroud um, drifts inversely to the amount of time he spends being a Chelsea player. Um, but you've kind <laughs> yeah. of got a feel for him in a way in that he had that he had that position on lockdown for so long. And had the Euros taken place when it should have taken place, he definitely would have played every game. And that, and he's chasing that goal scoring record as well. I think he's six goals short of the France goal scoring record. And then, like calling up Benzema was a massive surprise. Yeah. Um, because of everything that's gone on there, like you've kind of got to feel for him in a way. Like he probably didn't see that. He probably thought if I can just get this tournament and then maybe go to the World Cup next year as the super sub, I can get my record. I've got two more tournaments there, but he's kind of had that snatched away from him with the surprise recall of Benzema. And that must be difficult for him. Yeah. I mean, we better get this conversation done before Elliot gets back on the pod. It's just (laughs) as well we're having it today. But yeah, like I'm a bit the same. Like uh, I've, it wasn't Giroud's fault that he got done dirty by Arsenal. I mean, we didn't just bring in one French striker. We effectively brought in two, of, if you'll stretch it to Aubameyang. Uh, you know, they're, they're all, they all know each other. It's all the same. They all come from the same league. They all, and it's like just way too close to home. One after the other, they bring him in and he gets moved out. And, you know, it's, it's threatening his place at that point. Then he moves over to Chelsea and like, the guy's a fighter because, uh, you know, he's not it's not the style the top clubs are looking for, but he has to play for the top clubs if he wants to be uh, a factor for France and he has to play. And uh, he's manfully willing himself to staying in the frame in the picture. And like, as you say, then they bring, you know, oh, shit, he's back from the from the dead. Benzema, he's back in. It's like there's always somebody uh, coming to take his spot. Um I still have, I still wish him well. I don't have the same warmth for him that I had before for the reasons you talk about. And like people get all upset about him uh, kind of using his, his, uh, his issues with Arsenal as a motivation. You know, if it's the Baku Europa League or whatever, but players do what they do to, to G themselves up to prove a point. And it's like, I don't think he's really fallen out with Arsenal supporters. And if it has, it's probably because we said mean things to him along the way. So none of that really bothers me with him. I wish him well, but I don't have the warmth I had. It's been too long. You know, I've seen him with his other lover. um, And, you know, we ran him out of town in the first place. So I wish him well. But yeah, the, the warmth ain't what it used to be. Yeah, definitely not. And um, what what about um, your impression of France's... Like, like I think one of the things that happens in international tournaments, it, the group stage is almost like, like my thing about pre-season friendlies, right? And I mean, obviously, they're not pre-season friendlies, but, you know, my thing about pre-season friendlies, people go mad about them and, yeah. and until, like, two days later, and then they forget they ever existed. And I think group games are like that, international tournaments, and I think... 
um, particularly, you know, thinking of the reaction to the England draw on Friday night, like enormous overreaction, I think, to that, which I kind of understand. I'm not criticising per se, but I think that really happens that we massively overreact to group games. But has this um, has this result at all impacted um, how you think of France's chances of winning the whole thing? Not really. It might even be good for them. I mean, I saw the highlights. I saw sections of the game they looked really good to me uh like it's a bit outcome based mm-hmm. uh they had plenty of chances in the first half where they should have scored a goal um part of it i watched with the sound off which was kind of odd because i'm doing a, i had a couple of other things going on and i couldn't help if i were to say mbappe reminds me of a brazilian player of the past does anybody come to mind i mean ronaldo <laughs> yeah you could say like uh, the one that re- yeah but the one that really hits me is he's got a lot of pele in him okay um, yeah 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 that that like, is a comparison that has been made yeah uh, and i was going to ask that was the other thing I, i'm thinking i anytime i have an insight i'm like i always find out i'm the 1000th person to have that insight and i thought you would have heard that one but like they play a bit of a little bit of a different position and a little bit of a different role, but not that much. Um, and he's got so much of the similar game about him. And like, I know this wasn't the game that maybe everybody will hold up about him, but but I, I saw so many sections of play in this where he's just a force. Yeah. And so like, there's so much, it, it didn't quite click for them in this game in terms of outcome, in terms of goals. But, uh, you know, Brazil, I think I think in the 1970 World Cup, drew one of their games, to your point, in the in the group stage. And like you build as you go and having a little bit of a setback in terms of result, but the underlying performance, the strength, the options, um, it's kind of like basketball where the first three quarters don't matter too much as long as you don't fall behind in it. It's uh, you show up for the final quarter and everything else is kind of just jostling for pole position as you go into it. And the tournament is about building as you go, not being too hot out of the blocks in some ways, because then you start kind of locking into a way of playing or an expectation. But if you build a little bit more organically as you go in terms of the level of your play, uh, peaking at the right time, all that kind of thing, I, I think... I think there are three teams. Uh, I'm very clear there are three teams that should uh, make the final, any two of, and it's Germany and France are two of them. Interesting, interesting. My, uh, it's funny you say that. My tip before the tournament was Italy. Um, yep. And what, what's interesting with international tournaments is because most of us, I think, only pay attention to international football every two years. And so we put a lot on what happened in the last international tournament and Italy yeah. didn't qualify. So, yeah. oh, they must be rubbish. But then, like, they they want, they qualified with a perfect record. They haven't been beaten in nearly three... Like, they haven't been beaten since they lost their World Cup playoff against uh, Sweden. Um, and But I'm beginning to doubt that tip weirdly because they've been so good in the first two games and i kind of think yeah teams that win international tournaments don't do that they don't fly out of the blocks i tend to think that they always draw a game or have a setback somewhere whereas i've now got that kind of um that that feeling Mm. with italy where i think 
Yeah, maybe they're peaking too early and they're playing at home and and everything like that. Um, but maybe, but like that's that's just clearly like all in the mind at the moment. But that's the tournament narrative, but it does often play out. And yeah, those are my three teams. Um, for to be to be in my three for the reason you said, uh, Italy kind of needed to come out of the blocks hot because I still have that bias that they're kind of that team I I thought they were. Uh, in the past from recent non-qualifications and from their pragmatic defensive tactical selves. Um, and they very much looked the part. But yeah, that might be my fear with those guys, that they just won't build the same way France, like the confidence and the depth that France and Germany, mm. I think, justifiably have. Um, them having a little bit of an off game doesn't necessarily mean what it means with other teams. Well, at least that's my percept- perception. They're still kind of tweaking, uh, finding options, finding things that work. The question for me with Germany is only in a game in which they're not getting goals, is that the game where they wish they had a, a true striker to come off the bench? Can they always do it with other players um, in a true strikerless and a system um that was the only like that was the only flying the ointment for me with germany today how will they do in the game where they need a goal scorer to break the deadlock as opposed to you know the patterns aren't being weaved the chances aren't being created uh who's their lewandowski on the day but a lot of teams have that challenge where i don't think france have that problem they've got a few few players who will get a goal when maybe the team shouldn't have yeah yeah absolutely and um and yeah yeah i i I think uh, i think there's a lot interesting going on there in terms of potential winners because there are some strong teams in this euros but i don't think there's one team that uh it's not like spain 2008 or um or anything like that or france in 2000 like there isn't an obviously strongest um let's wrap up with a with a quick kind of go over of the the late game of the day which was spain poland which which i also thought was really good fun um for a number of reasons but i think the main talking point about this game certainly in the build up to the game was obviously that you know spain played sweden i thought the kind of the hashtag narrative around spain sweden was a little bit unfair where it was like yeah spain passed the ball a million times but didn't create anything i thought they created some good chances against sweden the issue was they didn't take them and so a lot of the um the kind of the talk in the build up was about Alvaro Morata and would mm. he play and is he actually any good and has anyone ever actually seen him play well but um, but th- they stuck with him and he scored the opening goal because a lot of the talk as well was about well Gerard Moreno from uh, Villarreal will come in and he did come in but he didn't come in in place of Morata he kind of played on the right and, and joined him up front and Morata scores in this game I read that Morata now has 20 goals in 42 games for Spain and David Villa um, got to 20 goals in 38 games for Spain. So he's actually doing all right for Spain. What do you make of Alvaro Morata? Because I think he might be the weirdest footballer out there. He's a great. Look, he's a lovely fella. I, there's one thing we can all agree on. He just, he looks like a lovely fella. Like, I bet he's lovely to his mom and lovely to his nan. And like, he's just really, really nice. Um, so like there's something we can all agree on no matter what side of the like I don't I haven't kept up with him and his XG but he feels like a player who's a mile behind his XG 
but I bet he isn't. I bet he's. I bet if there's any player in the world who's exactly on his XG, it's Alvaro Morata proving the if you get into the right positions often enough with your movement, you'll get your goals, even though it looks like you can't finish. Uh, like he's a bit like Spain, all gums, no teeth. Um, <laughs> I was working. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but I've been trying to. I, I missed the last 10 minutes of the game because I was working on this analogy. So I decided to take it to like uh, it makes sense with Spain because they're all possession. You know, you spend so much time chewing your food because you're all gums and no teeth. Um, and then I avoided the kind of uh, post post prime hooker analogy. I decided that was <laughs> crass and tasteless and below me. Turns out it's exactly at my level, but I still let it go. Um, like Spain are fascinating in that they're they're absolutely they're all possession no pizzazz they they got nobody who takes anybody on um, and yet they're weirdly great at possession and passing and like I don't really get it because like they got good players but they're not it's like in the blood it's like they're born with it or something they just know when and how to time those passes that so that nobody else gets the ball they've got all the possession um uh, so i found this game intriguing but man spain are dull yeah <laughs> they're just yeah. set up to be dull doesn't mean the game has to be dull because it's a it's a kind of a a wrestling a chess match. Did you know that Israel mean the word Israel means wrestling with God or struggling with God? No, I didn't. No, I I heard that the other day. I thought I thought, ooh, that's interesting. That's so like the idea of a people a nation struggling. If you think of the Old Testament, the, mm. like they kept losing faith and you know been dragged through the dead and it was basically this struggle pulling away from and then being pulled back to when things got terrible back to so anyway i don't know where i'm going with that but this game was like a wrestling interesting in the way a wrestling match can be interesting where not much is happening but there there'll always there can always be the killer blow um but just like i don't know where spain's teeth are going to come from because i've had a look at their bench i mean i uh, there have been other tour. They've been had the tournaments in the past where they looked good but didn't achieve anything, and then they started achieving things. And this seems to be just a new iteration where they're just incredible at in, incredibly good, solid at possession, not exciting, um, but can't do do anything exciting with it, except if they get the ball into the middle. Um, and Murata keeps making his runs, he'll hit his XG and they'll get some goals that way. I, I think that the, their strategy is to XG their opponent to death with Murata. He's the Spanish Banford, basically. Um, it's, yeah. It, it's interesting you say that because um, th this is exactly what I think, right? I think this is what who Spain have always been. And the outlier is 2008 to 2012. Because I remember like Euro 2004 mm. and they turn up with Raul Morientes, uh, Hierro, Poyol. Mm, like, listen to him. Loads of brilliant, brilliant Guti from Real Madrid. Like Redondo, no, no, Redondo was um, uh, Argentinian. But like they, they had these amazing players but they always flattered to deceive. And then they mm. just had this, like these three tournaments in a row where they did the exact opposite. And ever since they've reverted back to the mean, I, I think like 
Spain are the international equivalent of a striker that's run hot on their XG. And and all of a sudden, like a bit like that season that James Beattie nearly won the golden boot. And you thought, oh, is he? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> he, he just had one of those seasons where everything went in. And that's kind of what I think of Spain. Like I, I look at Spain, I think, ah, yeah, this is the Spain I know. Yeah, um, but aren't they overdoing it? I mean, like, forget the fact that he was in one of the teams where they won. But like when they had an Iniesta, they had Iniesta. Like, it's not the, their front line, it's not their attacking line, but it had spice mm. to it, you know what I mean? Whereas, um, you know, when they had, uh, like, even when they had Sesk in their kind of buzzing around on, on the right or as their 10 or whatever, these were players that you felt were going to go at you and hurt you kind of thing. And I'm not even picking their most attacking players. I'm just kind of saying in the mix of their, their outfield 10, uh, while they were very much the way they are now, they also had actual you know, occasional teeth, even if they weren't necessarily always the final goal scorer. They just just felt more toothy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. I agree. And um and, and what was weird as well was when they got Diego Costa that time and you thought, oh yeah. wow, like they won all these <laughs> tournaments without a striker and now they've got an actual striker and then they went to the World Cup with Diego Costa and got knocked out in the group stage. Um th- this yeah, has they, been like it, go for it, uh, sorry. I was just going to say, what do you get the team that has everything, a striker? And it's very much like you get like the wealthiest man in the world. The one thing he doesn't have, he's like, oh, that's not very exciting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We don't know um, how to use them. <laughs> and and I, so just to wrap up on this game, um, we've spoken a lot about Spain because I kind of think they're quite interested. I really liked uh, Miguel Delaney tweeted during the game. Why does every sport... Sp- Spain tournament game have to be a purgatorial existential crisis and uh, <laughs> that they have got like a real like I reckon in Dante's Inferno in the sixth circle of hell it's just Spain passing the ball endlessly and not doing anything with it um, but did do you have uh, I, I realize we haven't really spoken about Poland in this game mm. do you have anything um, because I've watched Poland in the last couple of tournaments and I don't know if it's just because they've got Lewandowski and then they've got Chesney and goal who, you know, I slash we have a personal interest in and therefore I've fallen into the trap of thinking they have nothing in between <laughs> and that there's like not a lot interesting going on. Do, do you have anything else, um, you know, on the basis of this game or what you've seen of Poland to say anything other than they have an absolutely world-class striker a goalkeeper that some Arsenal fans quite like, and that's about it. Uh, no, in fact, you've absolutely summarised uh, more fluently, more eloquently <laughs> than I what I was uh, about to embark on with Poland. They basically have two poles. Oh, oh, that's quite good. They have two poles, um, <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's Lewandowski. The North Pole and the South Pole. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, <laughs> And it's Lewandowski. I was playing around with magnets this morning, trying to weigh down a curtain between my kitchen, and I found got um, fridge magnets, and I stuck some poles together. So maybe uh, some some magnets together. And I was thinking about how magnets are made and alignment of and how it holds its charge. So that's why I'm into uh, magnets. I think anyway. So yeah, outside of Lewandowski and Chesney. Uh, Poland holds nothing for me. There's a there were a few more Auskies when they get when the game started and they subbed a few of those off uh, or on. I'm not sure. At one stage, I spotted about four Auskies besides Lewandowski. Maybe it was three Auskies. Um, yeah, I don't. They they 
don't do much for me. Um, the goal with Lewandowski is the one, like, Chesney did his best to make it interesting. Um, <laughs> it was all on display. His willing the penalty onto the post. I, 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 as soon as the ball hit the post, I'm thinking, Tim's persuading himself that Chesney had it covered. <laughs> it was just an inch inside the post. Um, and then he, he absolutely did his best to make it interesting in his own box from there on in, including it almost killing one of his own players to get a free kick and blame somebody for attacking him when it was him <laughs> attacking his own player. But Lewandowski, the, sh- the shove for the goal, yeah. it's like, oh, I was so angry with that. And then I'm like, but is it a foul? It's a foul because I hate Lewandowski and because he shoved him and it's a foul. But he is brilliant. It was exactly the right amount of foul that doesn't get yep. called. And I'm not he even sure. He didn't use his I... hands. That's why. Like, yeah. it was it was a nudge. It was a big nudge. The but timing. It was, a nudge. It was early, yeah. right? Yeah. The ball hadn't arrived. He shoves him when the ball's only halfway there. So it's like, well, why is the guy even complaining? Because, like, he's got plenty of time to recover, and he, he didn't. And, like, they're saying, oh, that's not a foul, the pundits. Because, uh, you know, the guy was a bit soft on it. Um, and I'm like, he wasn't soft. It's it's Lewandowski hit him when he wasn't expecting it. Creates all this space. And he buries it. And, like, from nothing, he creates something. And that's what Poland had to do. Get up the pitch, bang in some crosses, set pieces, keep, you know, press, cause a turnover up pitch. Because they didn't have a creator. They didn't have much game. They didn't have much passing. Get up the pitch, make something happen. Bang it into Lewandowski and let Lewandowski create something, the cheating, divey, obnoxious <laughs> git who's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and and the the kind of um, the format of these Euros with a certain number of third-place uh, teams going mm. through, like it, it kind of giveth and it taketh away. But when yeah. I look, now everyone's played twice. It's really only Group C that has pretty much nothing on it. Um, and the reason it has nothing on it is because Netherlands are qualified. North Macedonia are definitely out. And Austria and um, who's the other team in that group that I'm thinking of? Not Sweden. Uh, Austria and my mind's gone blank on that one. But they probably only one have... of the Balkan companies countries. Is it Mas- It's probably a Macedonia. No, or... Macedonia are out. Um, no. Yeah, but anyway, like they only have to draw with one another to both go through. And Netherlands are already through and Macedonia are already out. So like that group is is a bit of a non-event, but everything else and this group, you've got kind of Spain on you've got Sweden atop of this group, followed by Slovakia, followed by Spain, followed by Poland. And so the ramification, like I can't get my head around them, but like actually lots of the groups have got quite exciting endings, even if I think that the third place thing is a bit of a kind of a bit of a jib really but um i'm looking forward to the last group games anyway yeah so like i heard a lot of bitching about the the extra games is it four games across the six groups or whatever yeah yeah abc um and i gave it no thought because if there are things that bore you about the kind of the stuff around football the thing that really bores me is trying to think of permutations before people have even yep uh played and like my wife was asking me how how things are looking even today, you know, in terms of how how it'll play out in the groups. And I'm like, I'm not even going to worry about no. it till about halfway through the final game. That's when shit gets real in terms of permutations, right? What's going on in this game versus the other game? And I 
I think surprisingly, this four games or four extra teams spread across six groups, which feels terribly, terribly unfair on one level, is bloody great because you don't yeah. know where this shit's going to land. Uh, as you said, there's maybe one group settled. That means five groups. They've all got something to play for on the final day. Um, I think I might like it. It's yeah, wonky. Yeah. It's weird. Like life is messy. I don't know why we. I I understand why we over. When you top down engineer things, you take a lot of the life out of life, and this has life in it. Life is messy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's Sweden, Austria. It's Austria, the team I couldn't think of. But yeah, I I kind of agree. I I I tend to think it it reminds me of away goals. It kind of yeah. it adds and it takes away. But I think overall it it might actually add. But anyway. We've gone 50 minutes on this, which which was quite a bit longer. We did say it'd be freeform jazz, and um, yeah. we've riffed and soloed our way through this, and uh, and I've really enjoyed it actually. Yeah. Um, so Paul, thank you very much. Woohoo! And uh, tomorrow night it will be me and Phil Costa again, so it'll probably be slightly less freeform jazz and more hashtag actual analysis. But thanks very much for joining. <laughs> thanks very much for joining us for this uh, Saturday night edition of the Euros Daily on the Arsenal Vision Post Match Podcast. I will admit, postscript, I've had a few beers, so I hope that didn't come across too much in the presentation. Maybe it did, and that made it better. In which case. Um, I'll get drunk again tomorrow afternoon as well. Um, it's Father's Day after all in the UK. So anyway, join us again tomorrow night for um, analysis of, I think it's only two games tomorrow, isn't it? And they're both at five o'clock. I think we've got Italy, Wales and Switzerland, Turkey. So uh, myself and Phil Costa will be getting our teeth into those. Until then, thank you very much and good evening. Good evening.